0: Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast with a series called Promises and Power. The series focuses on Israel capturing the promised land guided by a new leader, Joshua. Today's episode, Conquest. You'll hear how Jericho was conquered according to God's guidance. Senior Pastor Perry Duggar will share how Israel conquered the city and how you can learn how to overcome your adversaries. Here's today's message. How many
1: of us have Jericho walls that need to come down? You know, I think Kevin was right. They're held in place by fear. They're held in in place by fear. We continue our series, our message, our series of promises and power. We receive God's power to fulfill His promises not necessarily our desires or our ambitions or our plans. The title to today's message is Conquest, which refers to defeating the city of Jericho. Take out your program. Your outline is there. The theme verse is from Hebrews chapter 11, which is the chapter on faith. It was by faith that the people of Israel marched around Jericho. Jericho, at the time of the conquest, was one of the oldest and it was the lowest city on earth, 750 feet below sea level. At that time, it occupied about eight acres, was located west of the Jordan River and northwest of the Dead Sea. It is nearly 3,500 feet below Jerusalem, which is only 17 miles away. That's why at Luke 10:30, which is the story of the Good Samaritan, it says that a man was traveling down to Jericho. I've been on a tour bus traveling from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho, and it does go steadily down the whole way. Jericho is located in a desert, Judean desert, but Jericho itself thrived as a fertile spring-fed oasis. It was referred to numerous times in the scripture as the city of palms, and that spring still flows, and those palm trees are still there. Now Jericho, with some of the earliest fortifications ever discovered, was built on a hill with a double ring of walls. The outer wall was six feet thick, the inner wall 12 feet thick, and it had round towers. The only way to defeat Jericho was to mount a steep incline. They had an incline access, but you either tried that one or built your own, but it would put attackers at a great disadvantage who could reign Arrows, spears, projectiles, hot oil on top of those, the soldiers as they climbed. The the best way to defeat Jericho, again, highly unlikely, would be a siege, but it would require several months to starve the people out and force them to surrender. Now this morning, we want to look at how Jericho fell, but we want to discern the truths behind that wall falling, that city being defeated. Because each of us, or many of us, I'll say that, has some kind of unassailable, apparently undefeatable foe that we're facing. Do you? Anybody facing something right now and they see no way to conquer it? Let me see your hands if you are. Hold them up a second. No way I can identify that as well. So let's identify our intimidating adversary, the one in our lives. And let's see how many of these principles apply to our situation. The first way to conquer an adversary is to accept God's plan. Joshua chapter six, in this Bible that we sell here, on page 183, beginning at Joshua 6, verse one. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. Remember chapter five, verse one, that we looked at last week, said that the people were afraid of them because of the Red Sea drying up. No one was allowed to go in or out, because you see, they were expecting an attack in the form of a siege in all likelihood. But the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You see, Israel trusted God to give them the victory, to fulfill his promise. But they still had to capture the city. And they could only do it according to God's plan. Verse 3. You and your fighting men should march around the town once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. In Hebrew, that horn is a yobel. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horn. Some of your translations say trumpets, I think. And that's still an animal horn, but it's a shofar. When you hear the priests give one long blast on the ram's horns, there it's queren, another Hebrew word for an animal horn, Have all the people shout as loud as they can. Again, this same verse also refers to a shofar in some translations. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. As I've mentioned, chapter six uses three different Hebrew terms for ram's horns or animal horns or kudu horns, the horns that, um, th- that were played earlier may have been rams. Um, I think rons may have been a rams. Um, I'm not sure. The other one may have been a kudu horn because it was very long. Um, the word shofar appears 14 times in Joshua 6. And the shofar was used, as Adam said, to call people to worship, but it was also used in warfare to give signals. So when the word shofar appears in this context, it's particularly connected to signaling for battle. God's plan for conquering Jericho was not a strategy for military success. How many veterans here? Right, hold them up. Let me see how many veterans. What would you have thought about this plan? If you were attacking a city, I don't know how many of you were involved in actual battle, but, but those of you that were, and what if the, you know, the commander says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to march around this city. What would you have said about it? I didn't hear that one over here. <laughs> no way, yes. Because this was an unreasonable plan. I mean, I'm sure Joshua himself thought, God, what are you saying? But imagine when the pe- he told the people, it was a foolish scheme. And these Israelites had been wandering in the wilderness for how long? 40 years. Yeah, 38 40 to 40 years. And so they were tired of sleeping on the ground. They wanted to capture a city. They wanted to have somewhere to land, perhaps. They were trying to take over this, this Canaan, this promised land, so they could have some permanent stop, a stopping place. But this tactic makes no sense. And the reason is because it wasn't a military strategy at all. It was a spiritual test of obedience. And I think a lot of the plans that God gives us that don't make sense are tests for us. Will we obey and will we continue to trust? But it must have frustrated these soldiers. Who was the central figure in the procession? Who? No, not the priest, the ark. It wasn't the soldiers, wasn't even the priest. The central figure was the ark. So God was the central figure. The ark represented God and God would conquer this city if there was to be victory. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who were powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God's plans bring him the glory. He gets the praise. The honor goes to him. He deserves all the credit. This culture of ours, even the Christian culture, puzzles me because we have, we have taken the world's view of celebrating and, and creating Christian celebrities. Celebrities. And yet you don't find any indication of that in the scripture. In the scripture, all the credit, all the glory, all the honor is God's. And he's using foolish things. So if God uses people like me, what does that say? It says, I'm using someone foolish, someone who's not, so that no one can possibly claim the credit but God alone and so when God uses you he's using you as something foolish something that's not powerful to defeat this world that thinks it's so powerful so that no one can boast except in the Lord God's plans are counterintuitive they seem unreasonable irrational, illogical. And the scripture's full of examples of this. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's what it says in Matthew 5. Never take revenge, leave that to God. Conquer evil by doing good. Both of those appear in Romans 12. None of that is, is a normal way of thinking, is it? It's, it's opposed to our cultures, the way our culture operates. So when you're facing an opponent, it might be a person, could be a group of people, might be a boss, might be a corporation, could be something within yourself, a behavior, an attitude, an addiction. Whoever the opponent is, whoever your adversary is, you must approach the problem God's way. We only defeat our foes when we use a plan that we receive from God. Now, how do we get those plans? Well, we find them from reading His Word. We hear them when His Spirit speaks through prayer. Sometimes it comes from the advice of a godly friend, but it's almost always something that at first blush seems ridiculous. So, the question for each of us is Are we willing to approach our challenge, our adversary, our assignments, by first seeking a plan from God? Which might, and I think will, be contrary to what this culture tells you to do. Are you willing? Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. You know this passage. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own ideas, on your own plan, on your preference, on your understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. To conquer an adversary, also, you have to attack God's way. Verse 6. So Joshua called together the priest. See, that the, the instruction had just been from God to Joshua to this point. Now he's telling the priest. and said, take up the ark of the Lord's covenant and assign seven priests to walk in front of it, each carrying a ram's horn. Then he gave orders to the people. March around the town. And the armed men will lead the way in front of the ark of the Lord. Now, he didn't choose all of the armed men. Because the scripture in Numbers, Moses counted the armed soldiers and there were 600,000. I've told you before that the conservative estimates of the number of Israelites in the wilderness were between 500,000 and a million. But the more common estimates are closer to 2 million. And Moses counted 600,000. So there were at least a few hundred thousand soldiers. So I'm sure that Joshua did not send all of them, but he selected some to go. After Joshua spoke to the people, the seven priests with the ram's horns started marching in the presence of the Lord, blowing the horns as they marched. And the ark of the Lord's covenant followed behind them. Some of the armed men marched in front of the priests with the horns and and some behind the ark, with the priest continually blowing the horns. Do not shout, do not even talk, Joshua commanded. Not a single word from any of you until I tell you to shout, then shout. So the ark of the Lord was carried around the town once that day. Then everyone returned to spend the night in camp dropped to 14 just skipping some redundancies on the second day they again marched around the town once and returned to the camp they followed this pattern for 6 days the priest and the soldiers listened to god's plan and obeyed it perfectly but what's most surprising about that in those instructions What do you see? What's surprising? That's a that's a good suggestion, but that's not what I think is the most startling. Told him to be quiet. He repeated it. Don't shout. Don't speak. Don't say a word. Why? Oh, when you read the scripture and there's something puzzling, always ask why. Well, when God gives you an assignment that doesn't seem reasonable, what do you do? What do you do? Complain? Complain criticize? How about some whining? Who, where are the whiners in here? <laughs> yes, there's an honest man. Because it seemed to these soldiers that they were doing nothing to defeat the city. How many, many of you in facing an adversary have said God's not doing Anything to help me now how many are courageous enough to acknowledge that yeah but God is doing something he 's doing something in a work that 's eternal he 's developing faith he 's deepening their trust in his promises, so he wanted them. To be quiet. He wanted them to concentrate on what he was doing. And to pray silently. Perhaps the spirit was speaking. But have you noticed the spirit speaks softly. How often do we fail to hear what God is saying? And we miss out on attacking a problem his way because we are doing so much complaining and criticizing and whining that we can't even hear. You wonder why you haven't heard from God in a while? Are you filling the air with complaints? The battle is the Lord's. These largely untrained soldiers with meager weapons, whatever they had captured from people they conquered in the wilderness or whatever they were able to to forge, you know, as they traveled about from day to day, they had no way to to defeat this highly fortified city using their own resources. The only way this city would be defeated was trusting in God and following His way. You know that challenge before you? You might not be able to defeat it on your own but God certainly can. Verse 15. On the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, As the priests sounded the long blast on their horns, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the town. How many of you said you were facing a walled city, an adversary, an opponent, you have no way to defeat? Are you ready to shout, is my question? Are you ready to proclaim God's victory? Or would you rather just grumble quietly and whine and complain? Has it gotten you anywhere? Usually not. It leads us to despair, doesn't it? It doesn't lead us to faith. It doesn't cause us to trust. It causes us to withdraw, close in, pull away. Pull away from people, pull away from friends, pull away from family, pull away from God. Do you see this emphasis on the number seven? Seven priests, seven horns, seven days of marching, seven times around the city on the seventh day. Well, in biblical numerology, seven represents what? Yeah, completion, perfection. God rested from creation on the seventh day declared it the Sabbath. And what it means is that God finishes what he starts and God fulfills what he promises. Philippians tells us, Philippians 1 says, and God will complete in you what he has begun. Are you pursuing God's plan? Now, first you have to know it. But if you know it, are you pursuing God's plan in God's way in your struggle against your antagonist? Are you trusting God for triumph? We also conquer an adversary by applying God's direction. And this means we continue. Verse 17. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and the others in her house will be spared for she protected our spies. Do not take any of the things set apart for destruction. This is puzzling, isn't it? In, he- in Hebrew, this is a karem. And what it means is it's something that's been devoted to God. It's been set apart as sacred, but it's dedicated and it's given over to God by destroying it. Or you yourselves will be completely destroyed and you will bring trouble on the camp of Israel. Everything made from silver, gold, bronze, or iron is sacred to the Lord and must be brought into the treasury. So this city was devoted to the Lord, which meant it would be completely destroyed, except for those articles that were specified made of silver, gold, bronze, and iron. The soldiers weren't allowed to take any spoils from this city, although typically they could when they defeated a city. They were allowed to take the useful things, Deuteronomy 20, 14. But you see, Jericho can be seen as a tithe to the Lord who gave them the victory. It was the first fruits of the conquest. When we give, it's because we believe that what we have, whether it be our physical health, our families, our employment, our salaries, we determine that those things were given to us completely by God. And so God gets the first portion of them. Now, if we think that is something we've earned ourselves, why would we give anything back to God? But this city was claimed by God to be surrendered to Him. And then they took some steps. You ready? You're, are you ready to take some steps? When the people heard the sound of the ram's horns. let stand. They shouted, let's shout, stand, let's shout. They shouted as loud as they could. We need to do some shouting, don't we? Less complaining, crying, moaning, and more shouting in the victory of God. And suddenly, when you shout, it drives out your fear. You notice that? It builds your faith. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into the town and captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. It seems odd to us, doesn't it? It seems cruel. Doesn't it? Does this seem cruel? I think so. The destruction of Jericho was judgment. It was judgment for the wicked worship of other gods, which took place through human sacrifice, including the offering of children in the fire, through sexual immorality, through cruelty and through wickedness. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6. Genesis 15, 16. But here's here's what we have to grasp. Don't think of the Canaanites as innocent. They had heard of the works of the true supreme Hebrew God for over 400 years. Don't think the tales didn't come. Rahab heard them. She heard not only of the, the draining of the Jordan River, She heard years before the tales of the Red Sea. That was still talked about. These people heard it. She believed. The others didn't. Verse 22. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with all her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. 24, then the Israelites burned the town and everything in it. Only the things made from silver, gold, bronze, and iron were kept for the treasury of the Lord's house. Archeology span reveals, there's been a number of digs there over the years, and it reveals that Jericho was destroyed violently and suddenly. Some of the archeologists say perhaps by earthquake, but the believers know what happened. And it was burned at the time of destruction which they date as around 1400 BC. It coincides with the possible dates of the Exodus out of Egypt and also the conquest of Canaan the promised land food supplies that were found in the rumble, rubble showed that it was not captured by a siege there was plenty of food that was left and so we look at this and then we see this move at verse 26 At that time, Joshua invoked this curse. May the curse of the Lord fall on anyone who tries to rebuild the town of Jericho. It was a symbol of disobedience. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, he will set up its gates. Heel of Bethel rebuilt the city 500 years later but two of his sons died, 1 Kings 16, 34. Here's what we have to understand. Like Jericho, our world is under the judgment of God and will be eventually destroyed. 2 Peter 3, 8 through 13. And I know you say, well, I don't want to hear any of that but that is part of the gospel. Now, sometimes we, we, we do prefer a more domesticated God. We don't like the idea of hearing the, the wrath of God, the anger of God, and you know, it's, it's been largely dropped in our churches because our churches want to appeal to people. But unless we understand the wrath of God against sin, we only have heard half the gospel. Why would you repent or fear a God who does nothing frightening? You think, well, I don't like the Old Testament God. I like the New Testament God. But God hasn't matured or changed. What has happened is that many of you have trusted in Christ And so God has no wrath, judgment, punishment for you. You're only related to through the grace of God because of the sacrifice of Christ. But outside of believing in Christ, there's only judgment, there's only condemnation. And that is equally part of the gospel. Jesus' son suffered in your place, in my place. And we've been invited to trust that sacrifice. But part of trusting it means we change, we repent. If we presume on God and we think little of our sin and continue to disobey and just think it's God's job to forgive us. We need to understand the holiness of God and the hatred of God towards sin, the sin that murdered his only son. And if we reject that offer, judgment does await as it does Jericho. You know, I, I have no pleasure, I take no pleasure in communicating this truth, but I'm not honest If I only tell you part of the story. This is part of the gospel. The flip side of forgiveness is judgment. And the flip side of grace is condemnation. So for each of us, have each of us individually believed and repented? Everyone. It doesn't happen in, as a whole church. It doesn't happen as a whole family. It has to happen in each one of us individually. God's offering, He's inviting. We have a step to take. Verse 27 So the Lord was with Joshua, and his reputation spread throughout the land. I think if we decide that we want to live God's way and we follow His direction in every areas of our lives, I think our reputations will spread as well You may think no one's noticing you, but they are. And they watch the way you respond to mistreatment. And they see how you react when circumstances are difficult. And they watch the way you battle an oppressive adversary. They see it and your reputation will spread. And in their day of difficulty, they'll come knocking. They'll come knocking. Today's the day of salvation and the offer is open. There'll be care volunteers here at the front to, to pray with you, to talk with you. And they'll meet with you. If you, if you, if you just say, I don't really understand this But today is the day. Father, I pray that you would show us the way to wage war your way. Lord, you know the adversary in each one's life, whether it be something within or someone without. Show us, Lord, how to do battle in a way that honors you and trusts you for the victory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.
0: Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. This week, identify your spiritual paddles. Ask God what he wants you to know and do. Courageously take these steps and ask him for victory. Here's our memory verse. Show me the right path, O Lord. Point out the road for me to follow. Lead me by your truth and teach me. For you are the God who saves me. All day long I put my hope in you. Psalm 25 verses 4 and 5. On next week's episode, we'll continue the series in Joshua, Promises and Power. To prepare, read Joshua chapter 7. Thanks for listening and have a great week.